wanting to do an episode on therapeutic day schools for a long time now. In fact, so much so that we're going to make it a two-parter. The first person that popped into my head was Sandra Spiker. She is the former teacher and principal of JCFS Therapeutic Day School. And the reason I know her is because my son went to that school for several years. JCFS stands for Jewish Children and Family Services. Once you hear her speak, you will understand why I view her as an expert and her dedication and passion come through so effortlessly. All right, we're back with part two about therapeutic day schools. All right, continuing on our conversation, one of the things I wanted to ask about was what is the difference between an alternative school and a therapeutic day school? Because when I was growing up, um, I knew some people that I went to school with who went to alternative school, and that was for the bad kids. Mm. That was the that was the label of it. I didn't make this up. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good that's a good question. So, alternative schools, in my experience, is often where students, and not necessarily students with special education services, right? Maybe okay. students that just have um, difficulty coming to school, right? I mean, some of the like alternative schools that I knew growing up was like it might have been you know, high school students that had children and need to have jobs, right? So that they would work on their path towards their diploma on, on you know, rather than going to school full-time. Um, so alternative school still to me is, it's not necessarily kiddos with IEPs and special ed. I'm sure there are some students in there that do have IEPs, but it seems like they're still, of course, tracking towards their, um, tracking towards their diploma. And in my experience, alternative schools are usually part of a district, right? Um, That's and, what it's, I was and it's and it's at the high school level. Have them. Um, but that said, that's the language that we know in the Chicagoland area because you know in the area that I'm in now there is an alternative school, but it's more like a therapeutic school um, that I just discovered actually. Um, so oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, but so they call can... it their alternative school, mm -hmm. right? So the so it's kind of interchangeable. The word. But, yeah, I think depending where you're where you're at um, and how what's available in the district and the areas. Um, so to be a therapeutic school, you don't have. I, I was under the impression that you had to have certain components to it to be a certified, right? To be an accredited, a certified mm -hmm. therapeutic school. I I assume that was necessary to be a quote unquote therapeutic school, but alternative school could just be okay. Let's create something. Oh, well, there, there have been therapeutic schools that I've known of that, that are not accredited. And so what that means is that the child just might not get a diploma, right? Because the therapeutic school that I was at and the therapeutic school that partners with the public school district, public school district pays for that child. That's one thing we didn't talk about. The yeah. public school pays for that per diem for that child to attend the school and they place them in an accredited schools, right? Because they're still, the public schools still overseeing that. And ultimately if the child stayed there, they get then their public school diploma. They don't get a diploma from the therapeutic school. They actually get it from their home school, which is What if they stay piece. at the therapeutic school for their entire time? Can they still get a diploma from? Yeah, as long as they're placed there by the district and they meet all their particular districts, high school graduation requirements, they get the diploma from their homeschool, which is great because then that young adult enters the world and nobody knows the difference, right? From where yeah, they that's are. a good that's a right. good point. I'm glad you brought that up because 
I, I think a lot of kids as they get older are fearful, like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have therapeutic school on my diploma and I have to hand yeah. it to high schools or or colleges and how embarrassing. Yeah. And that's not the case. I, I specifically for a Chicago area, I don't know yeah. about other areas, but I yeah. it's gotta be similar, right? Right. I would hope so. Right. So, so any child that we had that was a high school student, right? They followed the course requirements for their particular district. And so they got the diploma from their district. So uh, it was a rare case if a, stu a student was privately placed there that they got the certificate of completion or the diploma right from us. Um, they all they all got it from their public school. Right. Um, just go, going back a bit, you just were you were just talking about you know the school pays for this student to go when they're you know everything's gotten approved, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Are there are there parents in certain areas, Chicago or otherwise, that just insist this is what my child needs? They don't get the approval, but they pay for it out of pocket. Does that does that there exist? are there are and it's costly. It, you know. Um, Easily, probably over fifty thousand dollars a year. Yes, I can but people do it. I mean, you have. Do you have a percentage? People, people, people rare. have done that. People have done that. Um, we actually did have some students that were privately placed at the school I was at, and we actually gave them a greatly reduced tuition because it was just it wasn't reasonable. And they were students that were coming out of private schools that were not having success, so they didn't have the resources behind them as a public school district, unless the parent wanted to go enroll them, have them evaluated for special ed services and hope and pray they wouldn't end up in a therapeutic setting. So as a not-for-profit organization, we worked with those families to um, get them in. I don't know what other schools do. Other schools might have some fundraising and, you know, dollars that can offset those reduced tuitions um, or scholarships, if you will, however we talk about that. Um, but yes, people who are resourced you know, have those resources do place their students and their, their, you know, their kids in, in alternative settings. Even there's like nature therapy programs that, um, in most of my time in Chicago, the district didn't, didn't, um, tuition. And then something shifted, uh, those, the last year or two that I was there, the public school districts actually started funding some of those alternative settings. Mm -hmm. Um, so like nature therapy, um, probably cheaper than like a child going to a group home, right? Because I would always say like the therapeutic school might be the last stop before a child ends up in a residential facility. Mm -hmm. or, um, or a private school, an expensive private school where you think that your child will have more one-on-one. -on -one. Some of the private schools yeah. for smaller classrooms. And like a Montessori school? I'm thinking even older. I mean, just private school. Oh. But, yeah. I, you know, that's expensive. Right. And then you're still at the mercy of the child being kicked out, right? Like if they can't tolerate them um, or are unwilling to tolerate them, you're, you know, Don't you understand. are at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do therapeutic schools also do medication management? Thank you for bringing that up. I was thinking about that earlier. So yes, um, we had, uh, only a part-time nurse to start once upon a time, but then in the end we had a full-time nurse. Um, so we would admit the nurse would administer meds and everyone on the administrative team was trained how to administer medications as well. Um, it's important for the students. And sometimes, you know, students we knew that were medicated, but maybe not consistently medicated, we would offer the parent or guardian, like we can administer the medication at school, you know, and sometimes there's a, a 
con to that because then we have to wait for the medication to kick in. But at least we know the child's consistently medicated. Yeah. Um, but some students take medications in the middle of the day. Um, right. Just so, going to say you know, sometimes to do that mm-hmm. in public school. I know it's you know they have to have if, if this child is in a public school, it's another it's another uh, another vision of these kids going to the nurse every day, getting their medication, mm-hmm. and being singled out. Yeah. So. Yeah, and we tried to do it as discreetly as possible. At one point, the nurse was like, how about I just take the medications around? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like a mail like, cart? Yeah, we're not going to have a med cart rolling through the school's hallway. <laughs> oh, my gosh, no. Uh, no, the most you can do to, like, respect the privacy and dignity of that of every child, um, even though they're all there and they all know that they're there for a reason, as you know, especially as they're older and more aware. Um, but still. It's the golden rule, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so can can we talk a little bit about the older kids? Let's say a senior in high school, and I know that um, there were some Chicago land high schools that started programming that was for uh, kids that had been in and out of therapeutic schooling throughout. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not, maybe just receiving special services in public school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had offering they had programs that were offered that were post high school for after graduation they still need a transition from graduating from high school to the next the next stage and um there was some really interesting programming that was getting started do you do you have that have you had experience with that so I don't know, we won't name the district, but there was one school district that was close to Chicago that had started their own school and some of the more extreme behavioral needs, like the students were still being left in the therapeutics, but they were trying to bring as many of the students that had been placed, outplaced, if you will, into um, non-public schools is what they might be called. Um, we're trying to bring them back in district. I think for... Um, I think some of that was probably fiscal reason um, because it is expensive to, to keep students tuitioned out into a non-public school. Um, when you think about the the tuition that I told you, like a parent or guardian might have to pay, that's mm-hmm. could be a teacher's salary, right? <laughs> um, uh, but it brings up an interesting point that um, we said we wanted to get to in this part of this discussion is um, just because a child has met all their graduation requirements didn't mean that we were automatically graduating them and moving them out of the school. So students with IEP services can receive services up until their 22nd birthday. And then I think Illinois actually just changed that year or two ago. Like if a child, if a, if a young adult turns 22, like say in January, they have the right to stay in services until the end of that school year. Because before they had to actually leave services as soon as they turned 22. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we did have some students um, that we kept um, for more like life skills. Um, mm-hmm. They met their graduation requirements, if you will, their credits, but they needed they needed more, right, for us to feel exactly like we were ready to put them in the world. That's what yeah. I was asking. Yeah. It's, um, I think it was, it's a great, it's a wonderful idea because it's very necessary. There's, yeah. a, you know, a gap of graduating and then, you know, 18-year-old yeah. still lost in the shuffle too much. Yeah, and I think historically those services were, the young adult services, if you'll call them that, were 
often more in place for students with um, like cognitive disabilities, um, maybe physical disabilities, right? Um, not necessarily students that have mental health, you know, and I call them like the invisible disabilities, right? You look at them and you think, what's wrong with that person, right? Why are they here? Um, but I actually did have an interesting conversation years ago with someone from the state to say, yeah, just because um, they don't have Downs or severe cognitive disabilities or, you know, autism at, you know, extreme level, like, doesn't mean that just because they've met their graduation requirements that there's time to move them out. So there, there has been more recognition of that, I would say, even in the years that I've been in the field, that um, even students that might just have trauma, mental health issues, right, um, they also need just because they've met their graduation requirements doesn't mean like, okay, we can boost them out the door, right? Um, and, so, and we actually did have a component of that in the school. We had a vocational person uh, who would work to get the students, um, take them out in the community, help them apply for jobs. Um, we also had um, uh, a social worker who helped them with transition specifically. Um, and that's what transition services are called for students who are 14 and older with IEPs. It should be looking about where is this child going to move to, right? Will they be going to college? Will they need like adult, young adult programming, vocational life skills type of things? Um, and nobody wants to make those calls too early because you want to give the students every opportunity to go the, the path. But yeah, um, but parents and guardians should know that, that their child is out, they're eligible for services until the end of that 2020 two-year school year. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are surprised about that. I was surprised. I didn't know it was 22. I knew, I thought it was 20 actually, but still that is something that people would not realize with some of these schools that they would go to that age. Yeah. Great. It's just terrific. And yeah. the transition planning is, is so important because when my son was in their school, they, I would send them money, which I don't think you done this a lot or maybe have ever done it since but um i don't remember if i gave them a card or whatever but so they would take them shopping so they could teach them how to budget like mm -hmm. simplistic things like that mm -hmm. which i thought was super fascinating and and what a good tool things that we don't think about every day yeah life skills mm -hmm. life skills yeah Budget. So we did some interesting things like, like we ran a school, a school, a school store cart, if you will. So like a school store. Um, and part of that was, yes, helping students just manage money, interface with people, social skills, right? Um, life skills would pick out recipes they wanted to cook, you know, take their funds from the, you know, what they'd sold on the store, figure out what their budget was, go to the store, buy it, come back to the life skills cook it, right? <laughs> All that. Um, cook it in the school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the life skills room. Yeah. Oh, wow. the, light, the school that I am thinking of that I saw this years ago, this it was brand new to them, had all of the rooms, a kitchen, uh, set up like a store. They had all of this. Yes. In addition, yeah. in addition to that, do they have um, skill, a skill building on interviewing? and mm -hmm. getting ready for that next stage of having a job and, you know, beyond a high school job, but um, yep. interviewing resumes. 
Yeah. So our vocational person actually did that. Um, and then she would sometimes partner with organizations to do that. Um, and sometimes we would have, uh, she would organize, um, I would never take credit for any of this. <laughs> she was amazing. Um, like called in people from different industries and then, then they would talk, um, and, uh, you know, about the career and the path to get there. Um, and then sometimes those people would come back and do, you know, practice, um, interviewing with the students. Uh, so, and even to the point that we, um, and maybe Julie, we didn't have that, the life skills room in place. Um, but yeah, we had laundry in there, uh, a kitchen. Um, and so it was even helping students learn how to launder their clothes, um, for some of our families, um, you know, it was a few and far between, but if the model isn't at home, right, if we know the parents struggle with this and we know this is going to be something that stigmatizes this child, like we had to do this, right? Literally, like you're going to take these clothes home. You're going to bring back the other clothes. I mean, it, it was it was a process that happened for a couple of the students, um, just whatever they needed to help them be functional and, you know, make their way into the world successfully. Um yeah, I, I mean, I don't think every therapeutic school does this. Um, and you guys were so great about thinking outside the box on what would benefit the child the most. So it's unfortunate that they all don't do this, but yeah. it's, it's fortunate for the students who've been in front of you that you have all these yeah. services. Um, the other aspect to it is is going to college. How do you transition kids into college? Yeah. So, um, so we had what I called a reintegration person. We can talk about that. And then we had a transition specialist. So the transition specialist actually oversaw the transition plan in the IEP. And she was the one that would also, um, like if students were applying to colleges, like she would help them with that application process. Uh, she might take students to local colleges um, and do tours and whatnot. Uh, and what parents and guardians should know is that when your child goes into college, that IEP can follow them. Now, it's not at the same level of obligation of like service minutes as it is when they're in school, but it um, it allows the the college to know the supports and the accommodations or modifications that that an adult might need when they're in school. And well, at least the college that I went to, they had a department uh, that supported diverse learners. And I would think that most colleges and universities um, might have those services. More common right? now. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I so. think it's really common now. Yeah. That's excellent. It's really, yeah. Yeah, I can only speak to what I, I know for certain. But yeah, so our transition specialists um, did that. And that's something that parents, again, with uh, students that are 14 years or older, if they have an IEP, that should be something that's being talked about at, at, the, at the IEP annually. Like, what are the goals for the student? And what are we working on now to help prepare them for that long-term goal? And so the integration person... So there's Our, so, so so reintegration. So as I said earlier, the goal um, was not to bring these students ever into therapeutic school and have them stay there forever and graduate from us, right? If the students can do it, we want to return them back to what we call a less restrictive environment, um, and what would be their public school or their private school, maybe that they had been at or whatnot. Uh, so we had. Um, Typically, and even the districts wouldn't expect it until the child was with us about two to two and a half years, we would start reviewing, how is this child doing? Should we talk about reintegration? So we had a full-time person dedicated to reintegration um, that would work with both the homeschool, um, the staff there, um, the parent and guardian, 
and our staff to see, is this child ready? We had a, we had an assessment process. We talked about it every year at the annual case conference or IEP meeting, just to gauge like, where are we at? What do we need to be working on to think that we're ready to do this next year or middle of next year? Um, and, you know, sometimes the students were resistant to it. A lot of times our parents and guardians were resistant to it because I think I was saying early, sometimes the parents and guardians have fought for so many years to have, be, have their child be in a place where they're they're understood and they're making progress, right? So it can be scary to think we're going to move them back to a public school setting where, where they weren't successful before, where I was getting called all the time and, you know, feeling like a bad parent, whatever the story is. Um, so the reintegration person really was kind of the one that finessed all of that and considered all those, all those different components. Um, and sometimes, you know, if the homeschool experience had been so challenging or negative, um, and the parent or guardian was really adamant that they didn't want the back, the district would look at putting them in another school, um, you know, other than their home school, thinking about where's this child going to have the greatest success. And sometimes the homeschools weren't successful or not really positive about having the child come back, but our reintegration person would be like, I will be here. Um, so the reintegration person uh, would follow that child. Typically, we started them part-time, one or two hours, one or two periods, um, just to make sure that they're still getting the supports from our ther the, the therapeutic setting. We can track and see how they're doing. We can kind of, you know, troubleshoot any bumps that we might hit um, and really monitor the child and how are we doing through this process, right? So once the child was having success, we would increase the time. But the goal is to ultimately to get them out there full-time. And then the reintegration person had followed them for a year. Um, after they went full-time uh, just to stay in touch, keep track. And sometimes the students would be like, can you stop showing up? <laughs> uh, but uh, even, even sometimes after the student had been out there for a couple of years, our reintegration person might get a call from a social worker, a principal, someone at a school and say, you know, the student's really struggling. Could you come back in? Because it's, it's, again, it's just one of those, it's another person that this child has a safe, supportive relationship with, right? So um, really good work. The person who was doing that just left this year. So I'm sad for our students to know he's no longer in that role, but, um, really critical. Uh, and the students would often go through regression. We actually called it reintegration regression. You could almost bet on it, um, where the child, as they would start to approach the time that they know we would be talking about them reintegrating, we would see an escalation of their behaviors. Um, and even one of the students I was working with when I was teaching, I mean, behaviors we had never seen. And he was just eventually, he was just like, I thought if I acted, if I did that, you would tell me I didn't have to go. And it's like, I'm never going to tell you that. Like, you learned this, you need to go. <laughs> like, you, know, mm -hmm. you don't need to be here anymore. Like, we're here to support you. Um, but it, it was, it was, it was pretty predictable that the students would start to regress. Um, and typically in our environment, not, not necessarily in the public school. It's like, almost like, they knew they had to hold it together at home or like, or it's in the public school. And then it would kind of fall out a little bit more um, in our setting with our staff and we would move through it. Um, but again, that's even not, that's not even expected. Like I said, the districts wouldn't even start that conversation with us till about two to two and a half years in. And then there were some students that basically would say like, I know I can't go back to the public school. I won't be able to be successful. I know I'll fall back into, you know, especially our high schoolers. Like I know I'll fall back into all, you know, the dynamics and whatnot. Um, so some students actually stayed intentionally knowing that if they went back in the public school that they would be able to maintain success. Um, so each case is really different. 
I think it's good that they get to dip their toe in the water, so to speak. And I, I thought that was good for my own son because, mm-hmm. you know, you mean he, to go back into the public school. So he yeah. did. Yes, he he did the um, transitional program into in high school and mm-hmm. attempted to go back. He had a great time, um, <laughs> but <laughs> was doing the same thing he was doing in grammar school, which was he's socially he was doing wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, academically, he was doing nothing. So it, it, it did not work for him. But the other thing that we attempted was college. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can speak to that about Yeah, so college. I will say, because you were such a good advocate for your son, that was probably the one and only case where a child actually was starting to take classes in school and still based with us and still getting supports from us. Um, so that was a really unique, just so you know, you, you broke the mold there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but so he was coming like a reduced day to our school and spending some time out at a local community college, right? Yes. Um, and it, kind of the same mentality, right? As if we've been in high school, like how can we support him, keep him, you know, give him through these this transition, right? Give him the supports that he needs uh, and and you know, hope that he has success on this other side um, that we really don't have a lot of control over. But he, ideally, if you would like say he has control over, but that's so assuming that students and young adults have the skills to actually to do that, right? So, um, but yeah, that was the, that was in all my years there. He was the only young adult that we actually did that for and with. Um, and mm. a lot of this is conversations with the district, right? Because yeah. like I was saying, like even to for the parents to hear that they can the child can receive services through their 22nd year school year. Um, that's not necessarily something that some districts advertise, right? Um, and so the more knowledge the parents and guardians have to have these discussions, the better. Um, and some districts are very open about that. Um, but I think, you know, when we're talking finances and whatnot um, for districts, those are probably decisions they have to, to make, right? So... Yeah, I definitely agree. For people who are looking um, at therapeutic schools, what are some of the things that they should be looking for? Because they're all not created equal. Um, I remember when we started our search, there were certain schools on the list that I was like, no way. You know, maybe because of their reputation, maybe because of the reviews, you know, where we were talking, gosh, 15 years later, but (laughs) um, yeah. You, you really have to get in there and see what the school is all about. And I, back back then, and we're going back a long time, a lot of schools wouldn't even let you in. And so those were mainly the schools that I was like, no way am I going to let my kid go to a school that I can't even step foot in to see what it's like inside. Yeah. Also, wait, I have another part to that question is, do parents have a choice? Like, let's say the school. Oh, that's a good question. It, your yeah. child is really struggling here you know, we need you to come in. You come into the school as a parent and the staff, you know, the, the team at, at that point says, we think that your child needs to go to a therapeutic school. Do they say, look around and we'll pay for it? Or do they say, what we do is we deal with school X and Y or just school X? Yeah. So um, I think the district's got a lot better about giving choices. Um, when I first entered the field, um, the district that we were working with um, most 
had us as a preferred provider and would basically say, this is the, this is the school you need to go to. And it didn't matter if we had a seat or not. That just was not the way to do it for anyone's well-being, right? And, and they really stepped away from that model. And I was so thankful. Um, so what typically is that they ref- they give the referral packet with the consent for the parent or guardian out to two or three different schools, right? And then the parent or guardian gets to go and tour uh, those schools. Um, that That's the ideal way so that the parent and guardian has a choice, right? And then the school also has the right to say, I don't think you can service this child, right? Um, we were one of the few schools that dealt with students with more aggressive behaviors. So sometimes the student might have been in a different kind of therapeutic school or alternative setting um, and then escalated, you know, with more aggressive behaviors and then they might transition to us. Uh, so, um, and some therapeutic schools are have kind of niches, more specific populations that they work with. Like there's one that has a really good reputation and is known to work more with kids with learning disabilities. They also have students struggling with behaviors in the school, but most people know it as a school that works with students with learning disabilities. Um, uh, I think the school I was at and a couple other were more known, like okay, these are the real complex kiddos um, uh, and they would be, you know, referred there, but the parent or guardian should ideally have choice. And, and then again, a parent would probably listen if it, if a school said, this particular school has a lot of kids that are struggling like your child. You know, like you're saying, if they, if they are focusing a little more on one thing or another. Right. And then the logic to that, it can be like, well, great. Uh, we're going to put my child who struggles with all these other kids who have the same yeah, struggles. Right. And they some parents, know. some parents would absolutely swear that their child learned behaviors from their peers that they didn't have before. We, as a, on the school side, might say, "Well, that's not true." But okay, <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad uh, but, you brought that but, up. I'm but I could see that, that rationale, you know, of a parent or guardian thinking that um, for sure. Um, and that's just like, we really had tried to have um, classrooms for students with autism in the school, just because it was a need, because some of these students had some pretty aggressive behaviors, but it just wasn't a good mix. It didn't make sense that we had students um, with autism and a lot of sensory needs in an environment that could sometimes be disruptive um, as much as we tried to isolate you know, and address the children when they were escalated. We also weren't going to just put hands on a child who was walking through the hallway screaming, right? So there, there is this um, disruption in the learning environment that can be part of that. And I could see as a parent or guardian, if you came into a school and you were hearing some of that, it might be scary, right? Why would I put my child here? Um, so there's definitely not, I, I'd always say it's not glamorous work, right? It's, it's not glamorous to say my child's at a therapeutic school. It's not glamorous to say this is what they're struggling with right um but we have to meet we have to meet the students needs where they're at to move them along right so um but julie to your question like what should a parent or guardian look for uh you know and to when you're saying what should they ask yeah what should they ask um i do think it's interesting you said about not being allowed in because we're pretty protective of the learning environment just because every student in that school has a disability. And sometimes those schools also have um, students who are wards of the state, right? So there, there's a lot of privacy around that. So we did um, try to be protective of that. And also because like some students don't have a mom or dad to show up at the school, right? So it could be triggering. So we learned some of those things along the way. Um, but what to ask, I would think the biggest thing is to ask about um, 
what do they do when a child's what is a child is in crisis? They should ask what model they use. The staff are trained in for crisis intervention. Um, they should be able to walk through that school and see the staff working with the students. I always said that nobody could really understand kind of all of the magic or the work that happened in that school till you walk through the hallways, right? Because it, it sounds scary. But when you see that it's, you know, staff working one-on-one -on -one with students, listening to them, you know, taking walks with them, you know, walking outside with them, it's basically whatever a student needs. Um, I would ask about the level of clinical support because I know some therapeutic schools only have one social worker. Um, and at least for the level of the population that we work with, I really feel that the, the level of clinical support was part of the model. To, and if we would have changed that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we probably wouldn't have had the outcomes that we had. We looked at that quite a bit just because of thinking about the, what it costs to run the school. Um, uh, I would ask about how many students are in the classroom because uh, some schools might have 15 students in a classroom and have three adults, but I really do feel like anything more than eight or 10 students who might be dysregulated, it really becomes unproductive um, for anybody. It doesn't matter how many adults you put in it. Uh, I would ask what kind of therapies they might use. Um, you know, do they, they should all have generally speech and OT because they need to be able to provide what's in those services uh, or what's in the IEP, if you will. Um, what about CBT or DBT? Yeah, so now you're getting into more of the clinical stuff. But they, you could ask, like, what is the model of like that the clinicians use, right? Because that's not stuff that the classroom teachers are right. using. Um, but right, that's why it might be important to ask the number of clinicians. What would this? But again, they can't change the IEP. So if your if your student, your child has that, they're going to have individual social work minutes and group. The, the, the school cannot just willy-nilly enroll your child and take that out of the IEP. They have to be upfront to say, this is what we can and cannot provide. And then the parent gets to make the choice, like in the districts together um, to say, like we would, might have a child referred and that they would have school psychologist minutes. Well, we didn't have a school psychologist. So that would be a determination of whether um, the child could come to us or whether the parent was willing to drop that out or if it could transition over to clinical services. But they need to be able to provide everything in that IEP and that school should have already looked at that child's IEP before they even reached out to make that appointment with that parent or guardian because they need to know whether they can deliver that IEP and what's in the services. Um, I mean, parents, I know sometimes the parents asked about like, what were the test scores from the students or what curriculum that they used? And so whatever a parent finds important in, in that regard, um, that's important uh, to think about. In today's world, um, I would ask about, you know, the use of technology and how they also censor technology. Very important. Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good one. Because students, so yeah, that's students really that have like suicidal ideations, we don't need them to be looking up ways to you know, commit suicide, um, their Chromebook in the school. So uh, we had a, uh, a program that would censor certain words and then immediately our tech person would get alerted so that we would be able to, you know, intervene a little bit. Um, I would ask like the number of staff to student ratio. Um, so we had about 80, about 80 staff in the school and, you know, sometimes on average like 125 to 135 students. So, um, I think that was an important part of that. And I know some therapeutic schools didn't have like a specific crisis or support team. And I, and some of those 
some of those uh, former employees from those schools came to work in our school and they would say like that the school would just call code blue and whoever would be available would go running to help with those support and it's just like oh my god that sounds chaotic and like mm-hmm. kind of traumatizing for everybody so um that's why i said it might be no good to know how they handle crisis yeah uh, so you guys uh-huh. had a, a special crisis intervention team mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and those were the people in the hallway <laughs> that always looked like they weren't doing anything until they were doing something. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, but that's what we ended up calling the support team, right? Right. Um, yeah, and those were the be the one because they're they're not they're not compliance pieces, if you will. So, like the people in the classroom is what helps the school stay in compliance. So the the, the crisis support team or those extra support staff members, um, and we'll call them extra because everybody was necessary to get the work done, um, but they're not part of this compliance model, if you will. So they can be walking around the block with the child, right? For an hour while the child de-escalates and talks through uh, whatever happened at home last night or whatever's going on. Um, and if a child eloped, we all were you know, connected by walkies. If a child eloped, they would take off down the street with them um, or jump in a van and go after them. So my they, they, they were- <laughs> He was a were, runner sometimes. They, they were essential. Um, just always about safety and like I said again that just another level of relationship for the students lastly I want to ask you about police interaction because I'm sure that's on a lot of parents mind and they're very fearful um we've talked about crisis intervention on this podcast Mm -hmm. a few times and so I know uh, I'm going to speak for you way back when I was in community policing and we kind of put together a little program for we had peer jury, which meant mm-hmm. children under the age of 18 who were charged with a misdemeanor crime, non-violent, um, would have to go to a peer jury program instead of going to court. So it was deferred to this peer jury program that I ran as an officer, and the peer jury would decide their punishment, so to speak, whether that mm-hmm. was, I mean, gosh, the kids were so creative. They would have them paint, they would have them, but it was great to have and that what aspect, a brilliant idea it was great yeah, to have really these kids idea. yes wow. um you know sometimes they that. would make them do community service whatever the case may be but we wanted to have i think them to have a positive experience with police officers and i am obviously mm-hmm. probably different than a lot of officers i would go and pick them up at their homes <laughs> and bring them to the district to have peer jury but in general police interaction how does that look on a therapeutic steps? You know, how does, yeah. how does it look? So um, I can only speak from the experience at the school I was at. Right. Um, uh, if we called for emergency supports, it was because our staff really knew that we were not able to keep a child safe. Um, and at that point, it's a risk for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the police officers that we worked with knew if we called that that it was a real crisis situation that we weren't just calling really nilly. Um, uh, and I think it's real important to have a positive relationship with the police in your area. Um, I can just say like for a couple of our students who really struggled and we might have to call the police on, and the, the police actually, the police officers actually began to know the child, right? Mm-hmm. And they would say, last time I was here, this was going on and we talked about this. So what's going on today, right? Like, and it was really wonderful. It was just like a, another level of support, another layer of support, right? Yeah. Um, 
And in the heat of the moment, um, you know, sometimes people are like, well, they did this and I want to press charges. And the police are really good at calming everybody down. Um, at least the officers we worked with, which I really appreciated. Um, so I would just, I mean, that might be, again, if a parent or guardian is having to look like kind of figure out where might my child need to go, that would be a question. How do you handle a crisis? When are you calling? Do you call the police, right? Um, and frankly, I mean, ultimately, when the last number of years that I was at the school, the only reason we would call the police was to have a child um, transported to hospitalization assessment. It wasn't to have them arrested, right? It was like, this child needs an intervention that we can't provide in the setting right now. Um, and that would usually be significant, like a mental health crisis. So. And did you call CIT officers or it was just whoever? Uh, we would call, we, well, we would call 911 and say, right. we just, we need trans, we need transportation. Hopefully they sent the CIT officer. I mean, of, of your, whatever town, your, your, you know, wherever your school yeah. was, that they would know if, if a therapy yeah. school is calling, send someone who's trained. CIT. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. And maybe the, maybe those officers we worked with were, I, I didn't know. It sounds um, like it from your description of them wanting, you know, they sort of got to know the kids and the conversation. That sounds like somebody yeah. knows what well, they're talking well, about. At the end of the day though, uh, whether they were trained or not, I think that the biggest point here is build a relationship as a school. If you build a relationship with the officers in your community, then they know what to expect walking into the door, yep. which, which changes the whole, help. whole scenario. Yeah. And like I said, if they already knew that student, I mean, there were a couple of right. times they'd be like, oh my gosh, again, I'd be like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and sometimes, you know, they would ask, and this is another important thing is, um, you know, in a public school, like schools suspend children and you, you know, a child with an IEP and parents, this is something parents and guardians really need to know as well, because some schools take advantage of this. A child with an IEP cannot be given out of school suspension more than 10 times in a year. Um, without being like kept out of school without services. That was like a big no-no. I mean, we just never got to that case, that level with our students because we were trying to do um, creative things like, you know, community, you know, service where they'd have to go around and clean doorknobs or something, right. <laughs> um, uh, something more restorative, right? Um, uh, but um, you just have to be careful. And that would be something I would, just make sure parents and guardians are aware of, like they cannot continue to put your child out of school. And at least in the districts that we work with, it also didn't make sense to just move kids from therapeutic school to therapeutic school, right? Um, right. Because then the relationships start, have to start all over again. Like the you really take away the ground for the child to make progress. And at the same time, sometimes we would have to transfer students uh, to another therapeutic school because of safety concerns with other adult, with other students, should I say, like, that they had gotten into such conflict with a peer that for everybody's sake of safety, we would move one of the students. Um, and usually that would be a swap then from another school. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it really, they, you can't really just move them around and cause it's not, it's not beneficial. Like it, it um, but so that meant we would really exhaust ourselves sometimes for years and years, just feeling like we're not making progress here. And what are we doing? Um, so it's, it just always has to be an honest discussion about what makes sense, talking with your district, talking with your parents and guardians about uh, how are we doing? 
how long are we doing this for? Is this making sense? Um, have we seen any progress, even if it's two steps forward, one step back kind of thinking? Um, and that's another thing I will just say. Um, and I can't think about it like maybe before typically developing student, but I think it's true. Um, like some of the students would come in, they might have a honeymoon period and they look like they'd be doing great and then they would regress and maybe they move forward again. And sometimes both the parents and guardians, sometimes the students and the staff definitely would feel like, oh my God, we had this child at this level and now we've slid back to this, right? And it's just like, but when you're dealing with mental health issues and seasonal cycling or seasonal trauma, right? Like you're not going to see this also necessarily this trajectory. And if so, then they'll be reintegrated in all of the settings. So you can expect some steps forward and a step back. Um, and Julie, you can probably talk to that a little bit <laughs> that where you, you see progress, but then you lose ground, but you can't give up hope, right? You just have to keep at it. Um, yeah. My, my son was a season cycler. And so I think every spring I would, send an email hey heads up remember this is going to be a bad time but yeah. we, always, we always come out of it um and i think the other portion of that is just communication parents have to communicate i yeah. would do email blasts between everyone in the school who had contact with him whether that was the person in the hallway or mm -hmm. the teacher the the counselor the principal his doctor his therapist outside of school I would do email blasts on what was happening at home because if he went to his father's house for a weekend, had a terrible weekend, was not given any medication, I wanted you to know that when he was coming in. Yeah. And that's so helpful. Like that goes back to that piece and how important that parent communication is. Um, so good for parents to hear listening to this too, that they, yeah. the more they help with this, the better. Yeah, like a medication change, not having medication, have, having not slept the night before, anything can make a difference on how that child's going to present and be able to function at school the next day. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, I always felt like I, I couldn't have enough communications. You can't over communicate is what I would tell people. Be like, oh, I don't know if I should bring this to you. I'm like, nope, just bring it to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, the, the more I know, and then I get to I get to put it, prioritize it on right. the importance or share it with someone else that needs to know. You know? Right. So. Even if they had a fight with their best friend, because that impacts how their day is going to go. That's right. If you had a tough morning in the, you know, that morning, like that, that makes a difference. Um, yeah. So everything, you know, it's like all of us, and every bit of, every bit of what we experience, you know, can be disruptive. You know, um, we'd like to think, you know, some of us have better adaptive skills to stay regulated through it. <laughs> but that's what. And that's the other piece of it is you really have to think about it being skills based, um, not just like you're going to write an IEP and the you're going to write goals and the child's going to do this. Right. It's like, no, you are going to have to build the skills uh, just like you help a child learn how to read. You have to help them learn how to stay regulated, be self-aware, understand what their triggers are, how they're going to respond to those triggers. Right. Those that's all um, all that social emotional learning. Um, yeah. And like, so, you know, sometimes people would say like, well, they, they can't go to recess because they did this. It's like, okay, would you, would you say you can't go to recess because you couldn't read the paragraph in the in the book today? <laughs> like, I mean, I really try to equate it to it's, a, it's, it's learning, right? It looks and feels different, but it is helping the, helping the students learn skills, just like you're teaching them learning to, to read, do reading and math. Um, right. It has to be, it kind of had to take the subjectivity out of it, the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. That's a great yeah. point. Great point. God, you have such a wealth of information. You here. are. I feel like this has been, you know, an education for everyone listening. 
I hope yeah, we so. definitely cannot thank you enough for coming on here and sharing your expertise. Um, you're an expert in my eyes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and we're so blessed to have you here today. Thank, thank you, you for so having much. me. There, there are a lot of people that should grab a pen and paper before they listen to these two yeah. uh, parts of part one and two of this particular topic with you because a lot of great suggestions and uh, things that will really go a long way when people yeah. are in this situation. Thank yeah, you I so, so much. And if it helps that one family, then it's worth our time, right? <laughs> one student. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so you, much. Chandra. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. You too. Okay. Bye, Sandra. Thank you. Good seeing you. Bye. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.